The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 16th, 2017, the When I'm 64 edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson is with me here in Slate's DC studio of Face the Nation. Hello. Hello, David. John. And Emily is absent this week, but no matter, because Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post is here instead. Hello, Ruth. It's great to have you. Hi, it's great to us. be here. I'm not trying to create dissension between you and Emily Once or again. compare you to Emily in any way or make it seem like you're a better person to have on the show than Emily would be. Not Which at all. not possible. Definitely not trying to say that. On this week's GabFest, uh, the CBO scores Trump care and the numbers are even worse than the Republicans feared. Then Trump's new budget, his lean budget arrives on Capitol Hill and it takes a meat axe to the federal government, except to the military and to Department of Homeland Security. We'll, we'll talk about what may or may not get through from Trump's budget and also what it's like to run a, uh, a government where you don't actually have any people at the senior levels running that government. Then travel ban 2.0, meet injunction 2.0. We'll talk about the decision by a Hawaii judge to delay the implementation of Trump's new travel ban. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and for Slate Plus, the nude photo sharing scandal that is embarrassing and rocking the Marine Corps. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to join. And don't forget, we have a live show coming up in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, May 10th at the Warner Theater. You can go to slate.com slash live for more information and for tickets. We are really looking forward to seeing you at the Warner on Wednesday, May 10th. The American Health Care Act passed through House committees last week, late at night in one case, in the dead of night, and it passed through the committees without scoring from the Congressional Budget Office. Then, come Monday afternoon, the scores came in from the CBO. The scores cannot be blamed in this case on the East German judge. According to the CBO, the Ryan Care, Trump Care bill would cause 24 million people to lose insurance relative to the current state of the law which is many more than was expected, many more than I think even even the uh, most virulent critics of Ryan Care projected. The bill would also call, create a $600 billion tax cut, almost all of which would go to the rich. It would, however, save the government money or it would lower the deficit largely by driving people off of insurance, uh, subsidized people off of insurance, in particular uh People in late middle age, 64-year-old men seem to be the ones who are going to get hit hardest, or 64-year-olds, period, whose premiums in some cases would go up more than 700%. Uh, in some cases, people would be spending more in healthcare than they were earning. The The bill, of course, also massively cuts funding for Medicaid, and that is another source of lost coverage. So, Ruth, is the CBO score devastating for this bill or is this something that the GOP can recover from either by disputing it or by by um, by reframing it? Well, they are going to dispute it, but it is also devastating. I happen to be meeting with a Republican senator just as the score came out. So I had was in the um, interesting position of delivering the news to this senator whose face blanched. 
And they are all white, so it's hard to tell. They're very, they <laughs> blanch. They really start blanched, except for uh, blanchier. I think it's a big problem, and in a way, the that raw number twenty four million actually kind of understates the nature of the problem because it isn't just um, twenty four million people losing their health care or access to health care, as the Republicans like to say, but it's who gets hurt. It is, as you said, the old people, the poor people, the rural people. If it, in a way, if you took the if you took the Trump coalition and said, how could we devise a health care plan that would be most problematic to the people that we owe for putting us in office? Um, and most galling in terms of rewarding the people who are making enormous sums of money and who stand to gain enormously on their taxes by the repeal of these taxes, you would come up with this plan. It's it's quite perverse. John, what do you think will be the the GOP strategy and talking points for for rebutting what Ruth just described? The fact that this does hit their coalition so hard, the fact that the numbers are so huge. And well, that the, the tax cuts do go just to the rich. Well, this is a this is a problem uh, which I'll answer in a second. But let me just one other thing on the on the CBO. Um, so you know the administration has tried to discredit CBO. Others have said uh, CBO is wrong and has been wrong in the past. Uh, they have been wrong in the past by uh, on both the underestimating and overestimating. So this is not uh, the voice of metaphysical certainty, but. What the Ryan slash Trump care plan is, is it's based on a prediction about how people and markets will behave when you change a bunch of stuff. Ryan and Trump have a theory about how people will behave when you change a bunch of stuff. And that's essentially what CBO is. It's just that CBO employs 15 healthcare economists, uh, or maybe it's 40, 40 healthcare economists and have been tweaking healthcare models and ha- that predict and analyze how people beca- behave for the last 15 years. It's essentially two visions. One vision is based on what Paul Ryan and Donald Trump think, really more Paul Ryan, which is based on an idea about the free market. And the other is based on what the accumulated wisdom of scientists or uh, not scientists, but economists, yes, dismal scientists have, have decided about the way people will respond to certain pushes and pulls in the system. Um, And the reason I mention all of that is that, you know, you're then faced with the question of, do you go with the people who may not get it right, as all scientists and economists don't often get things right, but they have a system they've developed over a long period of time to study things versus on the other side, which is essentially a theory with some evidence here and there, but not as programmatic and systematic a theory of uh, judging human behavior as the other. So that's another way of looking at this in terms of putting this um, score in context. Um, John, can I interrupt you for a second? Because I really want to walk out on the score for a second. You can say as and this was actually really one of my favorite moments of the Trump administration so far. Um, that it, uh, Sean Spicer said, if you're looking for accuracy, don't look to CBO. So um, who could be a better um, deliverer of accuracy and um, spokesman for accuracy than Sean Spicer? But two, a couple other things. When you tell people that they don't have to um, purchase health care coverage, uh, so you eliminate the individual mandate, when you provide less robust, generous coverage for purchasing it, when you make it more expensive for um, older people, when you don't link it to regional variations, when you do all of these things, 
it only makes sense that you are going to get fewer people with coverage. That's, you know, I don't, you don't have to be a healthcare economist with a really complicated Rube Goldberg model to reach that conclusion. Number two is that there are some really good things for Republicans in this, but they come with a cost to argue them. One is that they are CBO score does talk about saving, I think it's $330 billion over 10 years. But in order to push that number and push it with the Freedom Caucus, which is concerned about the fiscal consequences of this, you then have, you can't just take one piece of CBO and say, this one is definitely right, whereas the other one is clearly obviously wrong because the two are linked. And also, interestingly, because I was not sure it was going to come out this way, the CBO um, says that Despite the fact that you would eliminate the individual mandate, the markets will not, in fact, collapse into a death spiral because only sick people will purchase it because insurance will become less expensive. So it will still be attractive to people, though it will cover fewer things for you, by the way. But you can't simultaneously say, look, we're going to do this, but we're not going to collapse insurance markets because CBO also says, hey, and by the way, all of that, they don't say it in this these words. Hey, by the way, all that stuff you've heard about Obamacare collapsing if nothing happens, that's also not true, according to CBO. So you can't just cherry, well, you can, um, but it's not intellectually honest just to cherry pick the attractive parts for Republicans of the CBO score. The CBO death spiral point is a, is a crucial one. A couple of weeks ago, I, I misspoke and said that it was going into a death spiral. What I meant was that now that Republicans are in control and Tom Price is at HHS, the regulations that need to enforce to keep it going, that there's an active effort to undermine the Affordable Care Act. And so I think the CBO school. So this, what CBO is basically saying is the premise for a lot of this work, which is that the Affordable Care Act is going into a death spiral, is wrong. So that undermine that kicks a leg out from under an argument being made to sell this. But um, you could nudge it into a death. Yeah, spiral. exactly. And, and they are in the and they would by not doing the things that would need to to keep it going. Let me come back to to your question, David. The key hurdle here is, and as Ruth said, even if CBO were off by. 22 million. The promise that Donald Trump made uh, was that more people would be covered by his health care plan. So that's at a fundamental level. The promise that Donald Trump made as a candidate has been upended by this. Now, the, the rebuttal from somebody like Paul Ryan would be, look, we're we're putting freedom at the center of the, uh, the health care system, not a bunch of government mandates. And when you do that and, and allow the free market to work, things will work out in the end. Now, whether you agree with that or not, what that represents is a split. Donald Trump was not really elected by the Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party. The Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party is very happy to have uh, Donald Trump as president to the extent that he can sign bills formulated by the by the ideas created by the Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party. What Donald Trump was elected by was the populist grassroots movement um, that's not only likely to, to face some downsides from this, uh, uh, but also kind of believes and was sold in a lot of instances by Donald Trump, the idea of big government. I mean, there, he was running on a big government vision. So what you have now is this funny situation where basically Donald Trump has to go out and sell a Paul Ryan idea. They are totally different people trying to do a sales job that is um, – 
completely disconnected from the, the from who they both are. And that is a that's the problem with trying to sell it, setting aside the actual numbers, which are bad, but also that the sales job here is um, has this fundamental tension. Well, in but it. Uh, and also, I mean, I think to get to your key point there, John, which is that there is this premise in the Ryan wing of the Republican Party that people actually want freedom and choice in healthcare, and I don't think there's any really deeply strong evidence that people want freedom and choice in healthcare. I think people really want, they really want health insurance and security well, and they say they want freedom, but yeah. actually given the choice, <laughs> given the choice of, of having to, of Medicare or like being thrown out into the free market of, in, of health insurance, people are going to take Medicare a hundred times out of a hundred. No, you want freedom and choice. If you define it as the ability to pick my doctor and my plan and have it be affordable, which is well, I mean, to have other people, yeah, to have other people pay for but, it, have right. other people subsidize it. And yeah, that's what there, they want. there was a reason that goes to freedom and choice that um, candidate Barack Obama did not originally have the individual mandate in his plan. In fact, had ads against Hillary Clinton that criticized her for forcing people to buy coverage. There was also a reason that President Obama put the individual mandate in his plan because it's important, if not essential, to getting enough people into the insurance pool. But people don't like, I think, as a general matter, to be bossed around and tell, be told what they need to buy and kind of that it needs to include particular pieces that they might not think are right for them. I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying there's like a natural human tendency to bristle at that. Well, but right. see, I don't – I. I think there is a natural human tendency to ideologically like go after that as a concept. But there are – in every one of us throughout our lives are told things that we have to do. We have to get car insurance. We have to wear a seatbelt. If you live in a home, you have to get homeowner's insurance for it. Like there is not – there is not massive – Outrage that people have to get homeowners insurance. They like accept having you know being being your, a human being who's a homeowner. You have to have homeowners it's, insurance. Yeah, it's probably your it's, mortgage company that tells you you have to have homeowners insurance and right. not the government. Though you're, I think your um, car, car insurance, insurance point to, is more to, to the do, point. You know, you have to be licensed yeah. to drive a car. There's an acceptance that if you are going to drive a car, you have the government has to say you are fit to be able to drive a car. You yeah. have to meet certain certain qualifications. So I think it's it is certainly true that people, if you ask them, would you prefer choice to non choice? They will say they. Preferred choice. If you ask them, do you want a government mandate or no government mandate? They'll say, I don't want a government mandate. But in fact, if you look, who was happy with their health care in this country? People on Medicare are happy with their health care. People on Medicaid are actually happy with their health care. You know, people who have private insurance and people who have to buy in the individual market are not as happy with their health care. How does that connect to your but there's independent two, mandate but there's point? Two, there's two sides of the coin, right? Yes, we're used to government and others being the boss of us in a lot of ways. But when you add a new mandate that people aren't used to, you're going to get more bristling than complying with the existing one. Right. The flip side of that is what the Republicans are experiencing right now, which is that a government benefit once conferred is the hardest thing on the planet to dislodge. Um, they can kind of argue their theory as much as they want. But when their governors and their constituents come to them and say, excuse me, I'm liking my Medicaid expansion here, that when theory meets reality there, um, reality votes. Uh, John, I have a question for you. So Donald Trump, we know, likes things that are popular. That's mm -hmm. one of his favorite things, right. is things that are popular. The bill, as currently constituted, according to the first poll I saw, it's it's twenty points under. I think the Fox had a poll today that says it's yeah it's twenty points disfavored. Right, could move in the other direction. It's more likely to move towards less popular as yeah. people know more and more well, about it. What does he do if this bill 
remains as unpopular yeah. as it is now? Well, this is the this is a fascinating question, and and Speaker Ryan knew and has known has known all along that what you said about popularity and knowing that that's going to be a, a challenge in his working with Donald Trump. And we should recognize that this is also a template for other complicated things that have to be sold: the budget, possible Medicare reforms that would be uh, contrary to what Donald Trump ran on, uh, and also, of course, tax returns. Uh, sorry, tax reform. So. All the stuff coming down the pike is not going to be easy. It's going to have this same thing where you have to do a bunch of complicated stuff and who's going to sell it in a simple, easy way to get people to embrace the trade-offs um, that are a part of these complicated pieces of legislation. So this is a dry run for a relationship that's going to be tested again and again and again. That's healthcare requires trade-offs that never – it's always going to be an un pleasant final product with a lot of trade-offs because that turns out to be what life is like. Healthcare is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Healthcare is complicated. And what's interesting here to me is that was the way it was, of course, for President Obama. And in the end, there was a speech that he gave, which you can find on YouTube, to Democrats in Congress before the vote on healthcare, in which the president basically went back to his origin story and their shared origin story of why they got into politics. And he played upon the kind of democratic view that you got to help people out who need help and insurance is something that's a part of our core democratic identity. It's a pretty powerful speech. What does that look like when Donald Trump gives that speech? The person who could give that speech is actually Paul Ryan, who could say to people who believe as he does, look, we have for our entire lives, the reason we got into this is we believe freedom and liberty in the free market allows individual choice. That in the end is better for individuals. And as a society, it's better when people have to choose for themselves. It not only forces the market to behave, but also breaks them out of dependence on government. And he could make that pitch to a number of Republicans. But the Republicans to whom he's making that pitch are not all in the in the same camp. They don't have that same shared ideology at that root level where you can talk about Jack Kemp and Ronald Reagan and summon that emotional, powerful thing. And the, a person who doesn't really have that is Donald Trump. He never, I mean, he would say small government and stuff like that, but he doesn't, he doesn't get uh, that rallying emotional feeling that Paul Ryan does and that other others who believe what he does believe. And so, again, for me, it comes at that last moment. Who? What's the Battle of Agincourt speech sound like to get Republicans all together? Or is it just a speech where Donald Trump says, look, I won in your district and I won in your state and you better come along, which is fine. That's muscle. But if you pass something on muscle – when it starts to go south on you, people who voted just because they were muscled into it, not because they had some genuine affection, are going to bail. I think that the um, Battle of Agincourt speech looks like this. Hey, guys, we, Paul Ryan and we, I, Donald Trump, ran on this um, overwhelming message that we were going to repeal and replace the horror, disaster, catastrophe, collapsing evil that is Obamacare. And it's I love the White House had it's the victims of Obamacare um, in this week. And we told voters that if they would simply put us in charge of the House, the Senate and the White House, we would repeal and replace. If we fail to do this, um, we will prove our utter fecklessness. And Paul Ryan said this this week, that we cannot deliver what we promised to voters. Um, and this will be a greater problem for us than the implications of whatever it is we can manage to pass, which to me raises the question, are they right? 
John. Um, is it worse for Republicans to fail to pass this or worse for them to pass it? I think it's a it's a great question. And I think you've got it. I think you've got it exactly right. So then the, then you have to ask the philosophical question. Are you more motivated by a thing that you're by something you're killing and or what is more rallying the notion that you're killing a thing which is to say obamacare or that you're rallying to the to a positive thing that you all believe in which would be the difference between what obama pitched and the pitch that you've laid out which i think is exactly right and is the one that they're making to try to rally people in the end you know would it be a bloodbath that donald trump predicted if they don't Vote Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, said it would be a bloodbath if they do vote for it. I don't know. I mean, it would be a big problem because, A, they didn't deliver, as you quite rightly said. B, because the grassroots think they didn't deliver because Paul Ryan created a complicated, compromising, feckless, kept the structure of Obamacare bill. So there would be that tension that created Donald Trump would would reinflame. And that's another thing, by the way, that's going on here, by the way, is that a lot of people who were elected and Donald Trump were elected to stop the compromising, to stop the capitulating and the weak need and giving in to the system. And so they see this bill as everything they all ran against, again, including Donald Trump. So I don't know how it all plays out. It's not easy <laughs> to figure out. I mean, it, it, but it doesn't look good. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The deconstruction of the administrative state has begun. On Thursday, the Obama, excuse me, the Trump administration, that was wishful, willful thinking. Uh, the Trump administration has presented its first budget. This is obviously something which will require actual congressional legislation to become reality. But this is the wish list that the Trump administration has for what the federal government will look like in the coming years and for what the federal budget will look like that it wants Congress to pass. And it is a deep cut to the deep state. It is the biggest set of cuts since World War II huge cuts to almost every department except Homeland Security, Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs, particularly EPA, State Department, Department of Agriculture, HUD, Commerce and Education all took huge cuts in this outline of a budget that the Trump administration presented the NEA and NEH and Corporation for Public Broadcasting and Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars all are zeroed out, among other things. There's 
much less money for things like climate research, for Meals on Wheels is gone or largely gone. Cleaning up the Great Lakes, that's going to be targeted. Most of what the State Department does, I think USAID got hit. Huge cuts to, to housing subsidies that help poor people in cities in particular. So, Ruth, um, is this going to, to get through untouched, unscathed? And we are, this is the, the leaner budget we're, and the leaner government that President Trump has promised us. I, I think reports of the deconstruction of the administrative state are greatly exaggerated. And everyone out there who thinks they're going to just get um, fuzz when they go to listen to national public radio on their FM dial should just stay calm because um, I'm trying to think of the presidential budget in recent decades that was not dead on arrival. I can't think of one, but this one is deader than usual. That's not to say that president doesn't make a difference in presidential priorities. So you don't cut the State Department by, I think they were originally closer to 40%. Now I think they're at 27%. It ain't going to happen. But when you have a president pushing in a certain direction, less bad things than he wants will happen, but bad things will happen. The thing to me that is just so frustrating and infuriating about this, and I'm probably the budget hockeyest person at this table, I really do think we need to make some changes to entitlement programs to get the debt to a sustainable level of GDP. But going after the smallest and already hardest hit piece of the federal budget, that is non-defense discretionary spending, is precisely the wrong way to do it. It's stupid. It's self-destructive. And as we've seen in past years, as Congress has tried to deal with the implications of the sequester, which already has taken a big, big chunk out of this part of spending, lawmakers aren't going to be willing to do it. So that's why everybody should just settle down a little bit. I love the idea of uh, fuzz on NPR, but as a show. Fuzz, the sound of flannel at rest. <laughs> it's not since the Yule log has anything been so calming. Um, the, uh, Isn't that what they replaced the bluegrass with? On <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's practically dumb because that's not where the money is. And it's politically impossible because so much money has been taken out of non-defense discretionary and, and budgets do always arrive dead on arrival. It felt like to me like the inaugural address basically from the president, which is to say this is a completely symbolic document for his – base and we and now we return to our regularly scheduled program and then it'll just be we'll just have the usual budget it'll be slightly leaner than it would have been under obama right more, i a mean more defense and less president, other stuff president trump will always be able to point back to it and say you see i try i wanted to deconstruct the deep state i have deep state in my ncaa bracket by the way yes uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> um he'll be able to point back to this and a, say a very deep bench <laughs> yeah yeah but much of it is invisible the question then is where where does the Congress actually end up? The Republicans like the fifty four billion for defense, but so the question is: if the Republicans want the, to get the fifty four billion across, how do they chop it up? And one of the ways they would do it is trying to tackle uh, long term entitlement growth, which is something the president said he will not do. Although his Secretary of HHS Tom Price has basically started using the language that Paul Ryan and Price used in the House to sell premium support systems uh, or what some people call vouchers for Medicare. So this seems to me to be the beginning also of a process of, of, of taking on entitlements, which will come out of the House, and which Donald Trump will ultimately support for future retirees and, and future Medicare recipients. 
And that's going to be a big, huge entitlement fight, which is going to have all the complexity and all of the, the ugliness that we're seeing in the American Healthcare Act fight. And so it's going to be equally as difficult. But, but with none of the popularity. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I think Dickerson just made news here with his prediction that ultimately Donald Trump, who said repeatedly during the campaign that he was not going to touch Social Security and he was going to keep the government's hands off your Medicare, is going to ultimately be willing to do that. What makes you – think he's willing to go back on that promise, well, John. Well, A, because he, uh, he's gone back on previous promises. B, because Tom Price now says, you know, the goal with Medicare is protecting Medicare, right? And as you know from the premium support debates, that's the argument that they made and have made in the past. In other words, Medicare is going broke. And so to fix it, we need to do X, so Y, to fix it, we need to get to get rid of the taxes, which are preventing it from going broke by taking those out in the American Health Care Act. It's... And- so, so, but that's the predicate. That's the pre-argument. It's like saying Obamacare is going into a death spiral. That's the argument you make before you do the thing. And then I think also Paul Ryan can make the case to Donald Trump that if you want this, you know, show him the math. If you want this spending on defense and nobody in Congress is going to vote for these, these cuts as you've laid them out in your budget, here's a big thing that you can do that will get you the money you need and want to do these other things. I mean – So I think that's where we're headed. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about this budget document is it doesn't have tables. It doesn't actually tell you, um, as budgets tend to do in my experience, what the cost is going to be, what the deficit is going to look like next year or the year after or in the five or 10 year window as normal budgets do. And I think that's probably not um, a surprise. Um, That's point number one. Point number delicious point number two. About it is I love that we're spending another, I think it adds up to $4 billion on the wall that Mexico was going to pay for. Believe me, that's a a delicious little thing. Um, And finally, not only does it not tell us anything about dealing with entitlements, it doesn't tell us anything about his tax plan, which has gone through multiple iterations, is going to be a huge fiscal hit if he continues with what he's proposed. And you know, that's a kind of really basic thing that one would normally see in a budget document as well. So there's a separate issue going on with the government besides the budget, which is that there are very few people working for the Trump administration right now. He has, he has put very few people into senior positions, nominated very few people, much slower than any new president in history. And some of it seems to be they just are unprepared. They didn't expect to win. They weren't as ready. And some of it seems to be philosophy. Trump has said we don't need all of these people. Ruth, is it alarming that there are not all these people in government or is it okay? Because if they were there, they'd be doing things that that you might find deplorable. Uh, It depends upon your baseline. Do you want um, a functioning government under President Trump? I think probably all of us should want a functioning defense department, a functioning intelligence community that has fewer additions than most departments, a functioning State Department, a government, a White House and a national security structure that is equipped, including having people in place, A, to respond to a crisis, which is inevitable because crises happen, and also to sort of just go through the basic things that governments need to do in conjunction with and in relation to allies. And there's a lot of frustration among um, ambassadors and embassies out there that they just don't, there's no one to, there's no one home to call. 
On the other hand, um, it's certainly true that if you are opposed to the fundamental goals of the Trump administration, particularly on the domestic front, that it's going to be much, much harder for them to do it if they don't have personnel in place and the burrowed in deep staters are there to basically balk at every moment. So uh, I would personally rather see a functional government than a non-functional government. But I have to say, you know, President Trump came in with a 100 um, judicial vacancies, right? That allows him to name a huge percentage of the federal judiciary. I think it's about 10%, even before more people start to leave. So as slow as he's been, and there's one other thing to push in there, which is that Democrats are not are inclined to do everything they can to slow walk all these nominees. And so they're not going to be very compliant. You can kind of never catch up when you're this far behind. It, It just has ripple effects throughout the four years of the administration. You know, so if he ends up appointing um, 100 judges when he could have appointed 200 judges, or I'm making up numbers here, that has an impact on the influence of his presidency. What will happen, though, is is ultimately there will be things that will, you know, bad things will happen as a result of either chaos or understaffing. I mean, it's intentional or it's uh, starve the beast or or neglect that will remind people why. Why government is important. Wait, John, you think he's being intentionally incompetent? Because I I think it's just not on the to do list. Well, I mean, very high on the to do list. Well, he did tell us that he, you know, he had determined somehow that a lot of these jobs were unnecessary. But it's also true. I uh, think that we have nominees. I may be one out of date. I think we have nominees for maybe three deputy positions. The deputy positions are the ones that run the day-to-day functioning. Um, And one of the reasons that we don't have it isn't because they don't understand that you need a deputy, but it's that they can't get to yes between their cabinet secretaries um, and the people in control at the White House. They're certainly not the first White House that has wanted, um, has balked at having people who criticize them during the campaign (laughs) in important positions. But it means that Rex Tillerson doesn't have the deputy of his choice and uh, is home alone at the State Department. But I so I think it's um, I think it's intentional in some cases. I think it's also they put a higher premium on getting their kind of people than on the efficiencies lost by not having the people in there because they don't either they don't think these jobs are crucial to what they're trying to do or they haven't learned yet that they are. Right. So So, I'm just going to argue that if it's intentional, it's really stupid. Um, because while there is not a deep state, there is a permanent bureaucracy. It's a civil service um, that tends to have, as it turns out, a commitment to the mission of the agencies that they went to work for, probably for less money than they could make in the private sector. So, if I were Steve Bannon and I would want and I wanted to deconstruct the administrative state. I would want as many of my own people in there in positions of policymaking authority as I could possibly have at the places I wanted to deconstruct, at the Civil Rights Division, at the Justice Department, in the subdivisions of the well, Environmental Protection Agency he's doing overseeing that. Well, I mean, we can see he is EPA doing that. is the example where they have they have staffed it up. I mean, they're all the whole Inhofe staff has gone over to EPA, and it seems like EPA is the place where they're really – testing this theory. Um, But to the extent that you need, maybe EPA isn't the, I'm backing down here as fast as I can, isn't the best example, but to the extent that you need Senate confirmed people in positions, they are making a big mistake by dawdling. 
Well, I think so. I guess the the Last what's word, happening yeah. is these beachhead teams that Bannon is or Bannon that Trump and and his advisors are putting into these administrations are federal jobs under the Senate level. So I think they are employing the strategy you're talking about at the at the deep state level <laughs> as a and the Senate com- confirmation level and the more complicated higher level stuff can delay for the reasons we discussed. But I but there is an effort to put people who are ideologically in sync at those lower level jobs that don't require confirmation. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. A federal judge in Hawaii, Derek Watson, on Wednesday blocked the revised executive order on the, the travel ban that President Trump had put in place. So dramatically several weeks ago only to have it overturned this revised ban affected only six countries it took iraq out of the equation uh, but it continued to bar uh, any kind any granting of visas and green cards to people from those six majority muslim countries it exempted people who already had visas and green card holders um, and also uh, continued its suspension of refugees so Judge Watson, who is in the district court judge in the Ninth Circuit, said that a reasonable observer could could see this as a ban that was based on religion. It was not permissible. He found a plaintiff. Someone found a plaintiff who could claim harm, a, an American uh, Muslim who had a mother in Syria who wanted to come to the U.S. and would not be allowed to come under this law. Ruth Is Judge Watson going to be upheld at the Ninth Circuit, and is he going to be upheld at the Supreme Court? Um, Probably, yes, at the Ninth Circuit, and I think really up for grabs at the Supreme Court. I'm— the reason I think he is going to be um, upheld at the Ninth Circuit is I'm guessing that the same panel will end up hearing it. And um, uh, let's just say President Trump did not help himself last night when at his rally he accused the judge of making a political decision. This is not a good litigation strategy um, uh, taken on the bona fides of the people who are ruling on you. You could tell that the Ninth Circuit panel didn't kind of – They didn't say it, but you can just tell that they didn't appreciate that. Um, And then he said, and I don't understand this. This was a watered down version of the original travel (laughs) ban, at which point you could hear the sound of 100 Justice Department lawyers slapping their palm against their foreheads in frustration. I'm sorry, under the new rules of uh, hiring, there are only 43 of those. (laughs) Yes, um, however many they were, they were all having the same oh my god, um, because you you saw in the judge's um, order the president's own words, Rudy Giuliani's own words, what the president said about the Muslim ban during the campaign being used against him. Um, uh, This judge, unlike the previous one, didn't just go to the irrationality of the order and the way in which it would or wouldn't um, affect our safety, but he got straight to the Establishment Clause issue that this was um, 
uh, animated by animus to uh, towards Muslims and uh, and really looked underneath that. And I think that is going to be uh, a very interesting question when it gets to the Supreme Court about what they're willing to do, because President Trump is right in the sense and he was I love that he's like reading statutes out loud to rallies that the immigration law does give the president um vast leeway and authority to determine who is allowed to enter the country and to exclude classes of people um but last i checked the constitution of the united states uh trumped pardon the pun um, the immigration law, and he has said a bunch of stuff that is now coming back. I think the technical legal term is to bite him. But the just so I understand the constitutional issue here, if I'm a Syrian who is not a, a a resident of the United States, I have no right to residency in the United States. The First Amendment doesn't apply to me. It's the only person who's being wronged here is the the person who the Syrian American who lives here, right? So yes. So um, the but the question is. The judge said both that the I believe that the state of Hawaii had standing. I I have to confess when I read it last night, I skipped over the standing pieces Mm -hmm. of the thing. I'm sorry. Didn't realize that standing was going to be on the test. (laughs) Um, uh, Both that the state of Hawaii had standing and that the um, Muslim American who was complaining had standing. And once they have standing, then. Um, if they are injured by an establishment clause violation um, in uh, their ability to get their relatives here and their ability to get students here and their ability to uh, attract businesses to their jurisdiction, um, then that's how the establishment clause gets kind of levered in there, even though you're right, the poor Syrian refugee doesn't doesn't get enveloped in that constitutional protection on his or her own. The um fundamental problem also involved in this is that it solves a problem that doesn't exist or that's the way the judges saw it. In other words, the urgency, the severity, as the judges saw it, of this, there wasn't such a grave threat that required all of that. And so in making the case for the original or the watered down version, the administration still hasn't come up with a great case. They've used the Jeff Sessions figures when he was a senator about the number of attacks, which have uh, are contradicted by lots of other more rigorous analyses of where attacks come from. I think, though, he's comfortable in a place of railing against the unelected elites. You know, when you saw the president railing against this at the rally, it was kind of a comfortable place to be, as opposed to the Affordable Care Act sales job, sorry, the American Health Care Act sales job, in which he's kind of caught in his own party. He's not delivering to his base what he promised. The bill that that he is supporting may, in fact, hurt people in his own base. It's just all complicated. Not It's not quite clear who to yell at. But John, don't you think that neither fight really helps him? Yes, it's easier for him to rail against unelected judges than it is for him to rail against elected Republicans. Um, but he's still not getting done what he said he was going to get done. He said he was going to be elected and he'd very quickly repeal and replace Obamacare with something way better. He said he'd get elected and he would make us safer. He's told us rather unconvincingly that this was going to make us safer, but he can't seem to get it through the federal courts. Right. Well, yeah, but and, I mean, it's early. It's one you have one judge and no, I think you have a bunch of I mean, well, he, I mean, one judge on this one, uh, one judge. And actually, I think there's two now. I think somebody else ruled last night. Um, sort of. I'll make you com- a bet that this one gets through coming in second. I think the harder bet would be, you know how they say measure twice, cut once. If they had actually gone through 
yeah. a logical yeah. and orderly executive order process where they had all their ducks in a row and they didn't put this yeah, out yeah, on a Friday yeah, night and it yeah, wasn't yeah. that – I think I would sort of bet with you, but I think that the – the um emanations and penumbras of this executive order might make it even too odiferous for the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm sorry, this is a, not an SAT class, is it? Uh, <laughs> it is. three everything, good every, SAT words Everything, there. John, is an SAT class, and I go but for I the old pen, analogy I don't, think penumbras, I don't think penumbras is a word. Penumbrae. Uh, yeah, I don't know. A-E. You, are you yeah. saying p- that penumbra, penumbra is, a, is a word, yeah, but, but there's not plural? No, penumbras. Oh, I penumbras. thought you meant adjective. No, that was an adjective. Penumbras. No, no, no. no. It, was it was a noun. Oh, you're penumbras, but odiferous is an adjective. Odiferous is was, an adjective. Said, Very but, good. But, yeah, were, yeah, but, but the, anyway, I thought, you were, the pretty, I thought they were they were merged together. The, I want to just jump on what you uh, said, Ruth, which is that the, the your argument, which is that um, the way this was handled undermined its ultimate success, I think is a crucial point because – in the early days of the Trump administration, there was all this question of, oh, chaos, you know, there was lots of chaos and people were reporting on the chaos and on the Hill, they were worried about chaos and the and the line from the White House is things couldn't be going more smoothly. Well, the reason that matters is not just about theater review, but it the question was whether the chaos, the self-created chaos was getting in the way of the president's own goals, not the goals of the deep state, not the goals of the press, not the goals of Republicans on the Hill, but whether he was – in the way he was choosing to go about this, undermining himself, and and I think that I think th- that I think it's turned out to be true that they rushed it, and also by the way, hurting himself not just in getting the actual ban passed, but then and I can't remember whether I've said this on the show or not, but the it has now come out in a much more forceful way how offensive it was to the Iraqis that they were put on the same list with the Iranians on this travel ban at a time when. The president's goal of defeating ISIS was underway with 40,000 Iraqi troops about to go fight ISIS in Mosul as a part of the coalition the America America is a part of. And the Iraqi prime minister is saying, hey, I'm about to you know send my young boys to go die. Uh, and you're putting us on a travel ban with Iran. And so, again, that's another goal of the president's is to feed ISIS and, and, and their dreams for a caliphate. And yet this travel ban in its haste bumps up against that. Now, maybe it wasn't irrevocable, but it was certainly avoidable and avoidable through a few phone calls. Um, And that, it seems to me, is the thing to keep the eye on uh, when there are so many different stories about um, chaos and different difficulties they've had is the way in which that affects the goals that he set for himself. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight 
bad. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! Gay rights! With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter when you are attempting to recover after yet another difficult week and you are sitting in the Marcus, the Marcus, uh, Living room, the huge snifter of brandy. What will you be chattering about? Well, Marcus? it w- it will be the Marcus Leibowitz living room. I, you always say that whenever I say that. It's I just a- like you know, because my, my husband has a hard time. You know, if you're married and you have a different last name than your husband, you're always getting Mrs. Leibowitz, and you say, mm-hmm. "Okay, fine." But he really seems to balk at the Marcus thing. Really? So I I need to do that for his fragile ego. Whose Thank name you, is the house in? Uh, Both of ours. We're both on the deed. Okay. um, My cocktail chatter is a um, lyrical one that's the latest chapter in a sad but beautiful story about Roman Totenberg's long-missing Stradivarius. (laughs) Um, If that name Totenberg sounds familiar, this must be NPR edition of my uh, gab fest moment. Um, it's because um, we know his daughter, Nina Totenberg. Uh, Roman Totenberg was a very accomplished violinist, died a few years ago at age 101, having lost his cherished Stradivarius, disappeared after a concert in something like 1980. He always suspected someone who was a erratic violinist, possibly a student of his, but could never prove it. Suddenly, as it turned out, on the last day of the Supreme Court term two years ago, Nina got a phone call from an FBI agent informing her that the long-lost Stradivarius had been found. This was a big, big deal. It was found. It was, in fact, the guy who her father had suspected all along, his ex-wife some years after the purloiner's death, turned it over to an appraiser who identified it as a Stradivarius and went to the FBI. It has now been restored, and this week was played by a former student of Roman Totenberg's at a at an event in New York City, including um, before the FBI agent who found it and Roman <laughs> Totenberg's daughters. And I just think it is a Really bittersweet story um, and something nice to think about that's not Donald Trump. John, what is your snifter of brandy? Um, my snifter brandy is a is a it's a story people have to go read. So it's not uh, it, it's not that perfect for a cocktail party, but maybe everybody could read the story and then go to the cocktail party and then they could all discuss it. It could be like a book party, but at a cocktail party. Anyway, it's a piece in GQ by Justin Heckert. It's a, a first of all, it's just a lovely piece of writing. But it's about Paul Mason, who used to weigh close to a thousand pounds, I think the heaviest man on the planet. And it is the story of his losing that weight. The lead is 
In the stagnant country of his little bedroom on the island of his gigantic bed with two curtains sewn together to clothe his body, Paul Mason decided that he didn't want to die. And then it goes on and traces his life and what has happened now that he is out of this prison and how that is its own set of challenges. It's beautifully written, beautifully reported. It's hard to write this kind of a piece and have it feel immediate on the web in the way that it would feel fine if it were in a magazine because you would you would kind of relax into the piece and let it go. And this worked fine in the reading it online. Anyway, a great piece that I just recommend, beautifully written and uh, and also uh, deeply human about this fellow. Wow. I actually have three chatters, but two of them are just doing business. My But my real chatter is I saw – uh, something that's even more wonderful than a uh, than a Totenberg violin, Totenberg Stradivarius being played. I saw a, a fantastic documentary called The Eagle Huntress. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's a new documentary. It's about a 13-year-old Kazakh girl in Western Mongolia, and she is learning how to hunt with a golden eagle. I think I've heard of this. Yeah. It's, it's a um, kind of hunting that's basically only done by men, very rarely done by women. And so she's a very unusual and that she is a she doing it. The movie is just beautiful. Like the vistas, you cannot even believe how beautiful the scenery is. The costumes are uh, she the, the girl is just unbelievably winning. Her father, who teaches her to hunt, is delightful. He's like a he's a, a feminist in, in, uh, in fox fur coat. Get to go to the eagle hunting Olympiad. There's eagles attacking foxes. There's foxes attacking eagles. There's, you know, raiding the eagle nest to get to get the eagle to hunt with. It's it's great. It's everything a movie should be. I can't recommend it enough. Now, two announcements. First, an announcement for all of our listeners who are journalists. Slate is hiring a politics editor. And you can have the chance to come direct some of the best political reporters and writers in the business during one of the most tumultuous moments in American history. You should apply to do that. If you're interested and have at least five years of experience covering U.S. politics, send a cover letter and resume to politicseditor at slate.com. To learn more about the job and the requirements, go to slate.com slash politicseditor. And then also, you should stick around at the end of today's show. Uh, our Slate colleague Isaac Chotner has a new podcast, a new interview show. It's called I Have to Ask. And his first guest is Chuck Schumer. Isaac is a great interviewer, and I've read his interviews in print for years, and I would love to hear him interviewing on podcasts, and I love podcast interview shows. So that's a podcast I'm going to listen to. I Have to Ask by Isaac Chotner, and you can listen to it after the end of our show. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producers, Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Uh, you can see the entire roster of Panoply podcasts at panoply.fm. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. And please come to our live show on May 10th in Washington, D.C. slate.com slash live for tickets to that. For John Dickerson and Emily Bazelon, no! Ruth. Ruth Marcus sitting in for Emily Bazelon. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Welcome. This is I Have to Ask from Slate. I'm Isaac Chotner. 
I've been Slate's resident interrogator for the past year or so, and have had some tense discussions with people like Newt Gingrich and personal conversations with novelists like Jonathan Franzen and Zadie Smith. Every week on I Have to Ask, I hope to bring those kinds of conversations to life. You'll hear the voices of newsmakers, celebrities, icons, really anybody interesting, and hear firsthand about their world and what drives them and their ideas. Today, my guest is Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Senator Schumer finds himself in a new political climate. The Democrats are in the minority in both houses of Congress, and President Donald Trump has almost completely ignored the protocols of his office, forcing more traditional politicians, like Schumer, to reevaluate how they operate. Senator Schumer spoke with me from his office in Washington. Senator, thank you so much for joining me on the inaugural episode of the podcast. It's great to be with you. Everything is going so wonderfully in America, I hardly have anything to ask you, but I'll do my best. (laughs) You know what Martin Luther King said? No, tell me. The arc of history is long, but it bends in the direction of justice. Oh, okay. Have faith. I actually did know that. Okay. Um, Do you view President Trump as in any way an ideological figure? And if so, do you think that ideology differs from other Republican presidents you've worked with or observed? Well, here, I think there's a dichotomy. When I, I said this to President Trump himself, I said, when he can't, when you campaigned, I said to him, you campaigned as a populist against both the Democratic and Republican establishments. But your governing is a hard right ideologue. Your cabinet is hard right. Your ACA proposal, Trump Care, is hard right. Your proposal on taxes looks like it's hard right. So he would never have won campaigning on a hard right platform because the hard right is so far away from where the rest of America is. It's even far away from where the average Republican is. But since he doesn't really care about the issues, and I think Pence, who's a hard right guy, Priebus, who just, you know, went along with the hard right stuff, they sort of packed the cabinet and are directing the president in a hard right direction. And I think his presidency is going to be, is not going to succeed at all because of that. Did you have any sense when you knew Trump before he was president? I know, I don't know exactly how well you knew him, but do you have any sense that he was the figure that we're seeing now, or do you think he's changed? I think he's the figure we're seeing now in the sense that he mostly cares about himself, his image, and how people react to what he's saying. I don't think he cared about issues then, and I don't think he cares about issues now. When he was in New York, he was sort of a Democrat. He was sort of pro-choice, sort of pro-gay rights. Now he's totally reversed himself on those positions, you know, for political expediency, because he ran as a Republican, and that's you have to, you know, sort of be that way if you're running Republican primaries. But as president, he's moved even further over to the right. Well, you particularly say, on economic issues. You say hard right. I mean, but there are different forms of hard right. And I think you're seeing right now in the Republican Party, you have this sort of cleavage between a Steve Bannon t- sort of hard nationalist right and a Paul Ryan more libertarian right. I mean, do you think that Trump sort of thinks ideologically about those? No. Okay. I think he does not at all. I don't think issues matter to him very much. But those two hard rights still um, tend, well, I think the, you know, the hard right that favors special interests, big business, tax cuts on the wealthy, 
is the one that's predominating. I don't think Bannon's opposed to those, but his stuff, you know, would be more like the immigration executive order and things like that. But I don't think they conflict with each other. I think they coexist with each other. Each side lets the other do their thing. You know, the business leadership probably didn't like the executive order, but because they're so panting to cut their taxes and so-called regulation, which we call protections, um, they go along. But I, as I think you brought up earlier, that the, the problem is, is that the sort of Steve Bannon wing of the party, I think, recognizes, at least politically, that it needs things like a something less than libertarian approach to healthcare, say, to have electoral success. And so I was wondering if you think that that is going to be a problem for the Republicans going forward. And if you think. I do. Well, uh, here's what I'd say. The fact that Trump is forsaking promise after promise to the middle class, you know, voter who voted for him is going to hurt his presidency and hurt the entire Republican Party. And I think provides a tremendous opening for us to fill that gap. Unfortunately, in 2016, we did not have a sharp, bold economic plan. And if you ask the average voter what a Democrat stand for, they couldn't say a thing. And that is something we must and are changing. I, I want to ask you about the Democrats in a minute, but I, I, just to finish up on this, it seems like you're saying that in terms of policy terms, you sort of think the Ryan wing will always win out. Trump doesn't really care. And I think Bannon thinks he can please his base by the kinds of bigotry and uh, calling out of the others. Um, and so on economic issues, uh, I think, yes, the libertarian wing will prevail. Now, maybe on something like infrastructure, it might not. But even there, where they seem to be headed, instead of actually putting real dollars into infrastructure, which is what the libertarian wing hates, they come up with these tax breaks you know, 82 cents on the dollar in a bill like that, that they propose would go to Wall Street, to the financial world. And you couldn't build anything in rural areas and in others. And that is, you know, not something I guess that the so-called Bannon wing would want, but would go along with. Do you think Mitch McConnell will bring an infrastructure bill uh, to a vote in the Senate? Well, I don't know if they can put the pieces together because this tax break idea just doesn't work. And one of the greatest, there are three weaknesses up. First, 82 cents on the dollar goes not to building roads or water or sewer or power or broadband, but to pay back the bonds, the bonds that are issued. Second, it creates tolls in places where they build things, where there were never tolls before. But third, and this will be real trouble for Mitch McConnell, you can't do anything in any rural areas because there's not enough of a revenue stream to pay back the bonds. And so how's he going to bring a bill to the floor that'll hardly do anything in so many of the rural states that make up his coalition? I want to ask you about Republicans in Congress from a more personal standpoint. You you know a lot of these people. You work out with them at the gym. You've known them as colleagues for a long time. I, I think uh, for people on the left side of the aisle, what's been going on in Washington, everyone is just kind of shocked and can't believe their eyes that this is actually reality. Is your sense from Republicans in Congress that... That's the or senators that, you know, that that's the way they are, too. They can't believe this is going on and they're happy to go along with it because they get some of what they want or that they're actually simpatico with what's coming from the White House. I think it's the former. But, yeah, um, I, they are going along and, you know, on things like the Supreme Court, they hope. We hope it doesn't happen, but they hope to get a nominee who's hard right. So they go along. But I, they 
I believe that many of my Republican colleagues are, you know, privately upset about Trump, and many of them are worried about the future. Uh, they don't want, uh, they're worried that Trump will lead them uh, into, you know, an abyss. Uh, do, do you have those conversations with people, or that's just your sense? That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Um, well, it just just to bring this full circle, then, it sounds like what you're saying is that more of the Republicans you know in Congress at heart are probably more sympathetic with sort of a Paul Ryan view of the world than a Steve Bannon view of the world. Well, they've, they've been part of the Paul Ryan world for a long time, and they've always gone along with it. Even the more mainstream ones let the hard right run the show. The lucky part for them is they never could govern from the hard right because we had a Democratic president, a Democratic House, or a Democratic Senate. Now that the hard right can govern, I think they're bumping up into the harsh reality that it's not what America wants. It's not even practical. That's what we've seen on ACA. I think that's what we'll see on their tax reform. Uh, it's going to have create all kinds of problems for them because you, an ideological, a hard right ideological movement like this is based on negativity. We don't want Obama to do this. We don't want the Democrats to do that. When they have to do things constructive, they're in a pickle. Um, you mentioned an abyss. Do, do you have things particularly that you're worried about in terms of an abyss? Um, what, what would just, you know, just here's the greatest thing I'm yeah. worried about. This is Steve Bannon. Um, their goal and Trump is part of this. It fits in with his ego, um, wants to make Breitbart news and the New York times equivalents and each is fake and the public shouldn't believe either one. If we get to that day in America, I'm worried about the future of democracy here. And you think that's a conscious effort that they're pursuing? Oh, absolutely. They don't want anything to stand in their way, including truth, facts. So that's your biggest sort of fear about democracy? Um, that's my democracy. greatest worry. That goes even beyond any ideology. It goes to the future of our country. Because if we don't have a... The founding fathers were amazing. And they put together this construct, this government, where people debated because... But they came from the same fact base. And then you had your views, I had my views, we'd go to a town hall meeting or we'd go to a Congress and we'd debate it and come up with a solution. If we are no longer fact-based and if everything is regarded as false and Donald Trump, as he did with the Obama uh, uh, wiretaps, can just make it up and no one believes anybody, that's a real problem. It's funny you say that. I mean, the, the conspiratorial side of Trump, which we've seen in the last five or six years, I uh, I was wondering, you know, from when you knew him, if you watch old videos of Trump from 15 years ago, he doesn't quite seem the same in that regard. Um, he seems to have a sense of irony. He seems to have a sense of himself you, as a you character. Followed, you followed the old Trump more closely than I did, so I can't really comment on You're that. a New Yorker. Come on. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker. I've seen him from afar, but it was always a show. It was always ego. It was always the name Trump. Not too much irony that I saw as I observed from afar. Uh, you both are very distinct type of New Yorkers, though. Do you feel like you understand him? I think I get a feeling for who he is and where he's at. Yeah. And that is? Care to expand? Well, I would simply say, doesn't care about the issues, willing to be expedient as long as it serves his own purpose and ego gratification. Who do you deal with these days at the White House? Is there anybody? Not too many because they've moved so far to the right that, uh, and I am the leading opponent. Uh, so they, they have not done 
Initially, they tried to reach out when they saw we wouldn't go along. You know, their view of bipartisanship in the White House is Republicans and the hard right come up with a plan and Democrats go along. Well, that ain't happening. And they've learned that. So we've had a lot of success. I mean, the first two months, much better than we thought on the two biggest issues, the cabinet and the Affordable Care Act. We are on offense and united as Democrats. They are on defense and divided. Who would have thought? What about the cabinet, since it was, except for one person, basically is, has yeah, been or will be confirmed? Yeah, we got to show who they were. They all went through a lot of scrutiny. And American people now know that Trump, who, you know, they're beginning to get a feel for who Trump is. And when Betsy DeVos tries to hurt public education, the public's aware of it, and that she's going to have many more constraints on her. When Pruitt tries to soil the environment, again, the American public is sort of aware of it. Uh, and there'll be constraints on him uh, when, you know, uh, um, uh, Mulvaney and uh, Price try to slash Medicare. That's already, you know, uh, uh, we're already seeing it with ACA and Medicaid. Uh, there's more opposition. So we regard what happened. We knew that the Republicans would pretty much march in lockstep on the cabinet. But we felt an obligation to bring out who they were, which is what we've called a swamp cabinet. Billionaires, conflicts of interest, and people who diametrically have disagreed with what Trump campaigned on. Classic being, say, Price, who wants to really end Medicare as we know. And Trump, when he ran, said I wouldn't touch me. He wouldn't touch Medicare. I want to ask about your party. When um, when you look back on Mitch McConnell's strategy that he used on the Obama years, uh, starting in 2009, what, what do you think of that as a political strategy of kind of going all out in opposition? We Democrats are guided, by, are guided by our values. We're not just going to oppose for the sake of opposing, but they've got to meet us on our values, and they haven't, and they've moved hard right. So, you know, if they were to say tomorrow, um, uh, we'll get rid of the carried interest loophole, which Trump campaigned to get rid of, of course, we're not going to oppose it because Trump's name is on it. But we're not going to just compromise for its own sake. And when they come up with a Affordable Care Act or a cabinet nomination or an infrastructure bill that doesn't meet our values, we'll oppose them tooth and nail. Do, do you think it's a fair criticism to say that Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell did not care whether people like them and that's something that you care more about? And so all that opposition is, is harder for you as Senate Majority Leader? No, I, I don't mind. the. Op I mean, this is a very important job. I realized something a few days after the election, that if Hillary had been president and I'd been majority leader, I would have had more fun. It would have been an easier job and most importantly, would have gotten some good things done, which is why we're here. But with Trump as president and me as minority leader, the job is much more important. So I am ready for the fight. I'm invigorated in a sense by the need to, to block what they're doing. And uh, that's what motivates me. I realize some people are going to throw brickbats, but that goes with the territory. Are there any red lines you have in your mind about things the administration could do in terms of extending a Muslim ban or immigration crackdowns that you would really try to shut down the government over? Um, in your mind, red lines that, that you feel like? Well, there are a lot of red lines that they could do and will be vigilant. Do you have any you'd like to share? No, no. I mean, you never know with this administration what they're going to do. We've already told them if they try to put the wall in the budget, we're going to oppose it tooth and nail. 
You and um, a lot of other people on both sides of the aisle have faced protests from people. I, I'm just curious, just as a senator who represents the American people, what what is the psychological role that protest plays, you think? Um, Look, I, I cut my eye teeth in the Vietnam War, opposing the Vietnam War. It was a grassroots movement that eventually toppled the most powerful man in the world, Lyndon Johnson. I think the protests are terrific. I'm all for them. The energy, the new energy that the Democratic Party and progressive America has found is great. Are there occasional brickbats thrown? Sure. Are people sometimes, you know, impatient? Sure. But that's just fine. I take that as part of it. And I'd certainly prefer having a strong out there protest movement than having quiescence, apathy or nothing. You said earlier that you uh, you thought the Democrats did not have uh, in uh, an economic message. Is that your analysis of why they lost and why Trump won? Look, when you lose an election like we did, you can easily blame the other side. And certainly, you know, Comey and the Russian hacking hurt our side a lot. But you have to look at the election and figure out what you did wrong. Because when you lose to somebody who was so unpopular like Trump, you got to say, what did we do wrong? I was going to say, yeah. Was, and my view is that we did not have a bold, strong, sharp-edged economic message. And we're going to correct that. We're in the process of doing it now. We've come up with a strong infrastructure program. Yesterday, we announced a family leave uh, program uh, and platform. And we're going to have, by, by the early summer, we will have a complete economic program that Democrats from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to Joe Manchin and Mark Warner can be proud of. Well, if America has another election, you guys can run on it. And we will. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help on this episode from Ana Lucia Murillo. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please take a few moments to rate and review the show. And I'd love to hear from you. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Until next week, thanks for listening. I'm Isaac Chotner. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. 
His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.